0: Welcome to the very first episode of Saga Thing, a podcast where we put the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John Sexton. And I'm Andy Fringer. So, in this first episode, we need to start by explaining
1: a little bit about this podcast, where it comes from, and what we're doing. Uh, The whole thing starts, I guess, with a drive from Cincinnati to Youngstown, right, John?
0: Yes, about a year ago, Andy and I were returning from a conference and driving across Ohio, and Andy popped in an episode of Rex Factor, a podcast popped in... Popped into the tape, the tape deck. Maybe <laughs> I'm sorry. What do the what do the kids today call it? The, the, I think it's just an MP3. Uh, yes, on his gramophone, he uh, started playing a copy. <laughs> uh, we were listening to this uh, podcast, how by whatever means, and what we uh, listened to was an episode on William the Fourth. This uh, this podcast goes through every king from Alfred to Elizabeth the Second. I don't really think of William the Fourth as being. A king or a time period in history that I'm particularly interested in. And yet, listening to the episode and listening to the uh, conversation between the two hosts and listening to the way they unpack the subject, I became fascinated with it. Uh, And we became interested in the idea of doing something similar ourselves. So
1: what I really liked about Rex Factor and the reason I brought it to John was because uh, as a fan of history, I was looking for a podcast that was more entertaining than the typical kind of drab, single individual babbling on, reading from uh, prepared notes, and Graham and Ali, the hosts of Rex Factor, provided that kind of balance of entertainment and information that I was looking for, and as soon as we got through listening to the episode, we started talking about how uh, it would be fun to do something like this ourselves, to continue the tradition started by Rex Factor. And we settled on the Sagas of the Ice, and there's a subject,
0: right? Yes. Well, it's something that we're both very interested in. And that I think both of us find uh, both entertaining and fascinating as a scholarly subject. So what we tried to
1: do was model our podcast on Rex Factor, uh, where we have both of us, uh, John and Andy, talking. um, And we're going to start off by providing, rather than a biography of a king, we're going to provide a summary of a saga, And we'll follow that up with some discussion and categories. So, what are the categories that we're going through? Well, uh,
0: in our judgment section, we'll uh, talk about best bloodshed, uh, the body count—how many unnatural deaths there are in the saga. Right, and we tried what we tried to do
1: with these categories is pick things that are typical of Icelandic sagas and things that we find rather entertaining about them right?
0: which of course brings us to the best nicknames in the saga (laughs) yes Uh, the notable witticisms the saga authors one-liners clever bits of writing that sort of thing Outlawry in which we will choose a figure from the saga to banish from Iceland forever Uh, Thingmen each of us will choose a figure to become our supporter at future things and this will be uh, a feature that carries over from one episode to the next
1: and we'll keep track of the development of our uh, Thingmen groups on our website yes uh, and then, of course, to conclude, each of us will give the saga a final rating. And here's a wholly subjective category where where you'll find out what I think of a saga and what John thinks of a saga. And then you can complain to us about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's what I'm looking forward to the most is uh, yeah, when the complaints, complaints start rolling in. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: All right. So, John, in this first episode, we need to cover some necessary background information. Um, if we must. Yes, we must, so that our listeners can appreciate the sagas as they were meant to be appreciated with uh, a basic understanding of the culture and history of the country we're talking about. All right, so what do we got? Well, we're going to do three uh, mini-episodes. They should be about 30 to 45 minutes in length, we hope. And uh, this first one we're going to call 1A, and it's the Settlement Age. We're going to look at how the Icelanders came to Iceland, how they discovered it, and what they did once they got there.
0: Right. And then episode 1B, will pick up with a discussion of law and the feud. A lot of conflict, a lot of uh, fighting in that one. The best thing about the sagas. Well, sure. That's sort of the main feature, really. Uh, we'll also talk about Iceland's conversion to Christianity in 1000. Uh, and then later on, uh, the decline and fall of the Commonwealth system from the 11th to the 13th centuries. Right. And then finally, in episode 1C... We'll give a brief overview of saga
1: literature, and we'll address the question, what is a saga? So, since this is episode
0: 1A, let's get started with... The Age of Settlement Settlement. Well, the story of the sagas is linked to the story of Iceland itself, so we thought the logical starting place for both would be the settlement period. That's
1: right. And, you know, all the sagas start with the settlement period anyway, so it makes sense for us to start there as well. Now, before I jump into this whole piece on the settlement period, it's worth noting that John and I are both academics. It's kind and, of you to say so. Yeah. yeah, We fancy ourselves academics, despite <laughs> our degrees. Um <laughs> So we get caught up in the minutia sometimes, and in an episode where we're going through history and background, it's very easy to get lost in some of this stuff. Um, so if you find this kind of thing really boring, and you just want to find out about the sagas themselves. Which, of course, you won't. You won't, we promise. Um, but if you do, you may jump forward to our second episode, which will be about Hroff and Kel's saga. And that will be a little bit more conversational and fun than what we can possibly provide here.
0: Right. There will, this will not be on the quiz.
1: That's right. But that said, John and I, when we first started uh, exploring the sagas, we did so uh, at first in a classroom, but then over beers and pizza.
0: Right. Increasingly over beers and pizza, as I recall. <laughs> much more
1: beer, much less saga.
0: Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but perhaps our scholarship would have been superior if we'd uh, done more sagas and less beer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So let's jump into the settlement period. It's known as the Lannam, or the land-taking, in Iceland. It begins probably around 870 or 874. This is a time when Scandinavians are moving all over northern Europe, flocking to Iceland as one of the places, hoping for a better life. Those who settled in Iceland were predominantly Norwegian, but they were not the first to inhabit the island. According to Ari e. Thorgelson, who wrote the landnamabok, which details the history of the settlement period, uh, he wrote, Then Christian men, whom the Northmen called popes, or papars, were here but afterward they went away because they did not want to live here together with heathen men
0: now, of course since we're pretty sure what he's talking about is a monastic community the other distinct possibility is that they of course simply didn't reproduce as monks are famous for not reproducing. Well, uh, sometimes in, in the Middle Ages, they were quite famous for reproducing, which
1: got them into all kinds well, of trouble.
0: Infamous, I think, is what you'll find. <laughs>
1: That's right. So now just imagine the faces of these Irish monks chilling out on the shores of Iceland, singing their their hymns and psalms. And then they see a sail on the horizon. <laughs> it's the ominous sails of the, of the... Yeah, it gets closer and closer and these, these hairy beasts get off and uh, invade the territory.
0: Uh, Speaking as a bearded man myself, I resent the hairy beasts. (laughs) Right. So
1: anyway, the the monks leave Iceland, or perhaps they're killed. Who knows? Anyway, Norwegians themselves discover the island around 860 when this guy named Nadal the Viking, a great nickname, sets out for the Faroe Islands from Norway. Like many of the early discoverers of Iceland, he got blown off course by a storm, and found himself on the east coast of Iceland. Another guy named Gardar the Swede found the island on his way to the Hebrides. He, too, was blown off course. Now, Gardar... Now
0: this just seems to me like uh, an unasked-for bit of good luck for these guys, because once you've been blown off course so badly that you end up at Iceland, there really isn't much else that you can fetch up against. I mean, if you miss Iceland in one of these Nors, in one of these sort of smaller ships... You're just kind of out there in the Atlantic Ocean. You could end up at the North Pole with Santa Claus. There you go. That wouldn't be too Uh, bad. But I mean, really, it's basically the New World is next, and it's likely that only your bleached bones will be left in the ship by the time you get there.
1: So, Garthar is kind of interesting, because he's the first guy to go and circumnavigate Iceland, so he intentionally sailed all around the thing, and he establishes that it is, in fact, an island. He hangs out there for the winter, and then returns home and praises the land which he called Garthar's home,
0: which... Means Garthers home. <laughs> because you felt the need to translate Garthers home as Garthers yeah, home. Yeah, because
1: there's an L in the, uh, in the
0: Icelandic Fair version enough. of it.
1: So. Uh, the first man to intentionally seek out Iceland was a guy named Floki, who's another Norwegian Viking. He'd or in English, Floki. <laughs> <What>? Floki. <laughs> uh, now, he heard good things about Garthers home, and he set out to find it for himself. With a few companions, he explored the island, and they were initially very, very impressed by the land. I mean, if you've seen Iceland, you know it's, it's quite beautiful. Um, so they were so impressed by this that they didn't take the time to prepare hay for their livestock in the winter, and all the livestock died. So, poor preparation for Floki.
0: Which, unfortunately, as we see in the sagas, continues to be a problem for Icelanders for the next few centuries. That's right. Now, in the spring, Floki climbs a high mountain to have a look
1: around, and while taking in the view, he notes an inlet full of drift ice. Inspired by this view, he started calling the place Iceland, and the name has stuck ever
0: since. So, the name doesn't come from his sort of bitterness about the cold winter that he killed off his livestock. Well... It could also come from the fact that uh, when he tried to
1: leave, uh, I believe a storm hit, and he was separated from his companions and forced to stay there a little bit longer than he desired. Mm -hmm. Um, One of his companions actually liked the place a whole lot and went home to describe it as a land where butter drips from the grass. And I believe his name was then, uh, he got the nickname Thorolf Butter from that. As opposed to Thorolf the Ridiculous Liar, which would have been quite appropriate. (laughs) But but, uh, Floki apparently came back uh, to Norway and did not speak very highly of Iceland because of all the troubles Mm -hmm. he encountered. Now, the first permanent settler was named Ingolf, and I won't tell you all his stories, but there's some interesting stuff about him. He arrived in about 874 with a few companions, uh, but by the end of the settlement period, so we're jumping forward now, roughly 60 years, the end of the settlement period is around 930 or so. Between 874 and 930, we, have, we go from one citizen to 10,000.
0: It's really kind of a, a free-for-all, a land grab.
1: Yeah, and this population grows exponentially between the 10th and 11th century, likely maxing out somewhere between 60 or 70,000, which is a rough estimate. We don't really know. There's no formal census data from that period. Those who came to Iceland in the settlement age, like any settler of a new land, did so for a variety of reasons. Now, certainly reports of good land would have been attractive to any settler, but we should also keep in mind that this is the age of Viking expansion in northern Europe. This is when Scandinavians from Norway, Sweden, and Denmark are successfully establishing themselves throughout Europe. If you're familiar with English history at all, um, those of you who listen to Rex Factor podcasts already know all about this, you'll know that this is the time when Anglo-Saxon kingdoms fell to Danish invaders, leaving only Alfred of Wessex to pick up the pieces. Norwegians were also moving west, mostly to the North Atlantic, where they settled in the Orkneys, the Shetlands, the Faroes, and the Isle of Man. But they were also active in Ireland, Hebrides, and the northern parts of Scotland.
0: So Iceland- And didn't receive a friendly welcome in many of those places, uh, which of course makes Iceland that much more appealing as a place that had no native population to resist their arrival. Absolutely. And we should just think of Iceland maybe as one of many destinations for Scandinavian
1: settlers. But it is different, as you say, because it offers land and resources that were as yet unclaimed and untapped. And not only that, what's really interesting about it for me is that there's no pre-existing culture. There's no social or political hierarchy that these settlers need to infiltrate or contend with. And I think that's one of the things that attracted a lot of these, uh, especially Norwegians. They could go and create a land in their own image, as it were. Now, almost every source from medieval Iceland explains that the real reason for the migration was not the desire for new land, but the need to get away from the one that they were living in. Because
0: Right. In the sagas, the tyranny of King Harald Ferrer of Norway assumes tremendous importance. Absolutely. And typically, Harald is depicted as this kind of upstart
1: chieftain or a petty king who undermines and challenges the authority of local leaders, free farmers, and regional kings throughout Norway. He allies himself with some really powerful families, and then tours Norway, basically conquering and subjugating everyone in his path. Right. And if that's not enough, he then starts levying property taxes on the conquered, which is really unheard of in a land where men
0: always own property outright. Yes, and so the settlers who come to Iceland are depicted in the sagas as having opposed or fled from Harald's expansionist wars. And although some arrive having had time to liquidate their wealth and prepare well for their journey, others escape with little more than their swords and the clothes on their backs. And even those who were wealthy
1: landowners that, that traveled over to Iceland, I think they found very quickly that their lifestyle was going to be uh, very different in Iceland.
0: Oh, yes. Right. I mean, Grettir's saga, for example, begins with Grettir's great-grandfather Onand joining the resistance to Harald and losing a leg at the Battle of Hafrsfjord. And, of course, when he then arrives in Iceland, he has to more or less begin anew uh, with a wooden leg and with virtually no land or wealth to call his own. Hafsjord was a naval battle which took place in the 870s or 880s. It's uh, it's significant to the Norwegians as well as to the Icelanders. And the coastline near uh, where the battle took place now boasts this amazing set of 32-foot-high stone swords commemorating the battle. The saga writer of uh, Greta's saga tells us that the forces on either side were very large, and the battle was one of the greatest ever fought in Norway. There are many accounts of it, and one hears much about the people of whom the saga is told. Meanwhile, a Norwegian scald, Thorbjorn Hornclofi, wrote a verse in a similar vein. Did you hear how hard they fought in Hafsjord, the high-born king against Kyopvi the wealthy? The ships came from the east seeking a fight, with threatening roars like those of fierce dragons. Meanwhile, you've also got Icelanders uh, who are descended from those who fought alongside Harald. Erbidja Saga, for example, begins with Kettle Flatnose, one of Harald's For those of
1: you who are wondering why we have a category called Nicknames, (laughs) it's because of guys like Kettle Flatnose.
0: Right, exactly. And Harald Fairhair, for that matter. Right. Uh, Kettle is sent to the Hebrides to bring them under Harald's control, but then he turns against Harald and keeps them for himself. Uh, He probably resented the subjugation to Harald, and took this opportunity as soon as he's away from Harald's eye to gain new lands for himself. Mm-hmm. Kettle's children end up being among the most prominent of the Settlement Age Icelanders, and several sagas are written about their exploits. Ail uh, saga, meanwhile, tells the story of a family that divides itself over whether or not to support Harald's conquest. Ail and his father refuse, but Ail's uncle Thorolf is one of the many men wounded on Harald's side in the fighting. Although he eventually falls out with the king and their feud forces Ael's family to relocate to Iceland. Actually, there's probably no better saga than Eils when it comes to the duality of Iceland's relationship with Norway in the sagas. The settlers and their, de- their descendants are fiercely proud of their independence, but they remain fascinated by the Norwegian kings. Aeol and his father Skallagrim never seem happier than when they're demonstrating their contempt for Harald and his successors, and Ael seems especially to go out of his way to continue crossing paths with them. So the sagas emphasize the settlement generation's opposition to Harald's power, uh, both to delineate the Icelandic character and to anchor the settlement story uh, historically. But as you've said, there are a lot of other factors and motivations for settlers coming to Iceland, and the sagas frequently underplay those in favor of the Norwegian king's angle. So what we should do now is turn to talking about
1: what life was like for the settlement age Icelander, and we'll do that in our section which we call... Life, life in the, in the Settlement, settlement age. age So, for those Settlement Age Icelanders who arrived first, life was actually pretty good. Um, people like Garther and Floki, who had been blown to the island, came home and told tales of fertile land for crops and plenty of room for livestock and forests full of valuable trees. These things actually turned out to be true for
0: the initial Icelanders. Right. I mean, the sagas actually describe small forested areas. Uh, not, again, what Europeans or Americans might think of as forest in scope or in variety, but certainly enough lumber that there was no immediate sense of a danger of running out.
1: Right. The Iceland that they came to was basically 65% vegetation, which is quite striking when you think of what it is today. It was 25% um, of that 65 was birch woodlands, and uh, I think 40% is grassland. Now, if you can contrast that to today... Iceland is less than
0: 1% forest. Right, and that happened very quickly. Uh, The deforestation, the clear-cutting for building resources and firewood uh, and the introduction of livestock really meant that within a generation or so, uh, the forests were more or less gone.
1: Right, and one of the things they did to help kind of uh, make that happen faster was grazing their livestock uh, by usually in the beginning of the season, so in springtime, they would send their livestock up into the highlands and the livestock would graze there. But the problem with that, it turns out, is that's when the grass is at its most vulnerable. And they basically killed the grass in the highlands. And then the next year they would kill just a little bit lower and so on and so forth. Well, mm-hmm. That increased the uh, potential for erosion. And the landscape begins to change quite drastically um, within just 60 years of the, the Icelanders arriving.
0: Right. And that dwindling uh, capacity of the land to sustain things like livestock leads to a fierce competition for resources. Uh, and, of course, to the need for uh, more importation of a variety of goods. Uh, It also, of course, meant that salvage, uh, the right to gather up anything that washed ashore along the coastline, uh, became a key factor in resource gathering, and it made for some odd scenes. Uh, More than one saga features a brawl breaking out over the right to salvage a dead whale carcass or some other flotsam that comes ashore. Uh, Obviously, uh, driftwood is a tremendously valuable uh, resource, and is prized by those who receive it. There's nothing like good flotsam. Absolutely. Uh, it's the jetsam that I can't stomach. <laughs> terrible jetsam. <laughs> jetsam. Jetsam. <laughs> uh, obviously the ocean is a vital part of Icelandic life. I think that uh, joke is for people that are well over 30. Jetsam. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Uh so, the ocean is obviously a vital part of Icelandic life, uh, not just for the contributions to the diet, but also uh, for its role in trading.
1: Right. And this was a warm period in Iceland's history. And that meant warm waters coming from the Gulf Stream and bringing with it abundance of sea life. That includes all manner of fish and a variety of migratory birds from Europe, North America, and Africa, all of them seeking nesting grounds in the beautiful cliffs and woodlands and shorelines of Iceland. And the settlers took advantage of well, that. Except, of, all of course,
0: that. there aren't any more woodlands. <laughs> No,
1: not anymore. But again, at first there were. Um, The other thing that the warm waters brought was a lack of drift ice. And this made navigating around the island quite easy for the early Icelanders. Uh, This is something that in the 12th century, when a cooling period begins, uh, their descendants wouldn't quite enjoy as much.
0: Right. And Icelanders, of course, tended to be expert sailors. Uh, Obviously, they were either uh, the people or the descendants of people who had managed to sail to this volcanic island in the middle of the ocean. Uh, They used a variety of ships in the conduct of their business. Uh, Small boats, and a small boat uh, in medieval Iceland meant a vessel with fewer than 12 oars, uh, were used mainly for fishing and for local travel, while trading ships and warships were designed for ocean-going. Warships were thinner in proportion to their length than trading ships, but both could be used in combat, and both might be put to work transporting goods in times of peace. And of course, because raiding was a popular means of gaining resources some Icelanders had fast-moving ships for going Viking in other lands. Uh, And it's important to point out that, uh, for those who aren't familiar with the topic, uh, that Viking is a profession, not a people. You are only a Viking when you are off uh, raiding in other lands. Uh, When you're at home, you're not a Viking. You're an Icelander or a Norwegian or a uh, Mm -hmm. Dane.
1: And typically you're tending your farm. And for these earlier people... uh, it's important to note that they weren't really going uh, out a Viking for their king or anything like that. You're doing it for yourself. Going a Viking makes it sound so cheerful. Doesn't it? We're going a Viking. <laughs> so You skip into the monasteries.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> Axes at the ready. Here we are. Going a Viking. Yes.
1: Um, and it's part of their culture as well. It's, it's one of the things that makes a man, right, is your ability to go out and, right. and uh, do manly
0: things. Right. Returning from a successful voyage. Returning with obvious signs of wealth. Uh, always indicates that you have uh, done well and that your status in Iceland is then raised accordingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but domestically, when people are at home, their life does revolve around that farmstead. Uh, it's a group of buildings, usually dominated by a hall, which served as a combination of gathering space and sleeping area. The design actually has a lot in common with some Native American longhouses, uh, such as the Wampanoag Nushwetu. Uh, it looks rather like a smaller version of an Anglo-Saxon mead hall. The hall will have one or more fire pits running down the center of its length, benches around the outside for sitting or sleeping, and then storage rooms, separated sleeping rooms, and sometimes latrines branching off from the main building.
1: I hope, since there's so many people living there, that the latrines are a little farther away from the building.
0: Unfortunately, no. Uh, Really? While they did have some outhouses... Certain farmhouses would in fact The hall would have its own latrine Attached to the building And accessible without having to go outside Which is a real advantage in the middle of winter I
1: didn't know you knew so much about Icelandic
0: bathroom habits Well I'm a, I'm a man who enjoys A good latrine anecdote <laughs> uh, But if you actually visit uh, Reykjavik They have uh, an archaeological site 871 Which has the uh, footprint of a, uh, An Icelandic farmhouse from the 9th century and you can sort of see all the outbuildings and things attached to the building uh, right laid out there for you. Mm. Uh, there are also obviously blueprints that have been put together by archaeologists who have dug up a number of these farmhouses and uh, have shown sort of the variety of the different building types that there could be. So old latrines are kind of a hobby horse for you then? Absolutely. Uh, my wife and I have a portrait in our in our living room of a Roman bathhouse, which includes, of course, its latrines with their many holes. <laughs> Put to good use, no doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, of course, the farmstead needs to be a flexible source of income for a family that's going to survive in Iceland. Uh, wealth comes from a variety of sources, from the ocean, from the land, from livestock, uh, and obviously from trade, as we've already suggested. Uh, fish are a staple of the settler's diet, uh, as is seaweed. Yum, yum. Uh, sheep prove to be a cost-effective use of the sparse grasslands. And also the Uh, source of its destruction. Well, right, absolutely. But, uh, of course, an early attempt to import cattle uh, was even more disastrous. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cattle simply were uh, incompatible. They're too inefficient a converter of uh, land acreage into sustenance to be viable in a place like Iceland.
1: Yeah, when you're husbanding all your resources to try to survive for yourself, the more food you have to put into the mouth of your animals, the less food that goes into your own mouth.
0: Right. Uh, Sheep proved to be sort of the best-case scenario for livestock in Iceland. Icelanders became expert in both wool production uh, and in the creation of wool cloth. Typically, women in the family would weave the wool into the sort of homespun, uh, providing a basis for the entire Icelandic economy. Trade and even fines are typically measured in lengths of this homespun cloth. Uh, The sheep, of course, also provide milk and cheese, uh, and then, uh, finally, meat and hides. Horses are a sign of affluence uh, in this period. Icelanders do typically own uh, horses as needed, but a, so- a herd, for example, is the sign of a wealthy man. Uh, Icelanders developed their own breed of horse. It's a short and stocky breed that is well adapted to life on the island. It's actually the size of a pony, uh, although it does lead to one to imagine a tall Icelander uh, being able to sort of stand up in the middle of a battle and have his horse ride away <laughs> from underneath him. Yeah, um, just
1: imagine all the stories of of the Icelanders traveling their long distances on horseback and they're just like uh like
0: Right, suddenly they're all Sancho Panza. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm is. picturing. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um the only thing that the Icelanders had uh more than they needed of uh, apparently was gods. Uh the religion practiced in Iceland in the 10th century was uh rigorously polytheistic. The settlers brought with them a faith in the Germanic gods Odin, Thor, Heimdall, Frey, Freya, Loki, the whole pantheon. Uh, Thor, of course, is a particular favorite of the Icelanders and shows up disproportionately in their naming practices. And anyone who's read a few sagas has had the experience of being awash in Thor-derived names.
1: Right, the Thorsteins.
0: And the Thorkils and the Thormods and the Thorgears yeah. and the, the <laughs> Thorgrims and on and on and on.
1: You can hear the Icelanders uh, saying,
0: "Thorger, get the uh, tea right. <laughs> ready.
1: The Thorbergs are coming over.
0: <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> no, there are no Thorbergs.
0: Oh, dear. <laughs> even after the island's conversion to Christianity in the 11th century, the gods, and especially Thor, lived on in naming practices. As cool as
1: Icelandic paganism is, and it's very, very cool, John, it really doesn't appear in the sagas as much as I'd like it to.
0: Yeah, and even when it does, it tends to be uh, sort of suspect in its depiction of what pagan religion really looked like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things we do see sometimes
1: is a real emphasis on the relationship between the individual Saga characters and the gods. And that's kind of interesting. Our second episode actually features Hrofenkel, who's a devout follower of Frey. And we're going to see the si- same kind of thing again in episode three when we look at Erbigha Saga. And old Hrolf, who's described as a, a chieftain of considerable standing and also a very close
0: friend of Thor. Yeah, we know him better as Thorolf Masterbeard, which is actually a combination of two nicknames. On the one hand, he's just a guy named Hrolf with a long beard who lives on Molster Island. He's called Thorolf, which is a blending of the names Thor and Hrolf, because of his devotion to Thor and because of the great temple that he built for him. That's right. You know, Thorolf Mosterbeard is such a catchy name, isn't it? I know. I admire a man with a good beard. And a <laughs> Moster beard even more
1: so. I know you do. Yeah, Thorolf's actually a really cool character because through him, the saga author is able to kind of explore a couple different areas of Icelandic paganism.
0: Right. One of the more important motifs attached to Thorolf is the use of the high seat pillars in determining the best site for establishing a settlement in Iceland. It's a pretty cool moment that's worth sharing. John, if you got your copy, why don't you read a little bit of that? Sure, I can do that. Uh, Thorolf was advised to go to Iceland, so he bought a sizable ocean-going ship and prepared it for the voyage. He dismantled the temple and, along with most of its timbers, put aside some of the earth from under Thor's pedestal. Thorolf put to sea and had a good passage. He made landfall in the south and sailed west along the coast around Reykjanes. By the time the fair wind began to fail them, they were able to make out some broad bays cutting into the coast. Thorolf threw overboard the high seat pillars from the temple with the figure of Thor carved on one of them and declared that he would settle at any place in Iceland where Thor chose to send the pillars ashore. No sooner had the pillars begun drifting away from the ship than they were swept toward the western bay, and not slowly either from what people could see. Thorolf sailed westward round Snofelness into the bay. They could see it was broad and long, with high mountains on either side, so Thorolf gave a name to it. He called it Brethefjord. He put into land halfway up the south side. Then he began exploring the land. On the tip of the headland to the north of the creek, they saw where Thor had come ashore with the pillars. It has been called Thor's Ness ever since.
1: It's such a great passage, isn't it? I, I like that it's not just uh, it's not just the pillars came ashore, but Thor came ashore.
0: Yes, Thor comes ashore with them, which is uh, a little bit ambiguous as sort of what's intended. by yeah,
1: And them. I also like that Thorolf puts aside some of the earth from under the pedestals of the original temple.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a fantastic detail. I mean, they uh, what we're being given is a moment when not only the sort of settlers are coming ashore but in a real way when their gods are colonizing Iceland as well. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, And the other thing that's interesting, and something we see a good bit of, is that the gods should have a say in where the best place to land might be.
1: Yeah, this is where we usually see the gods being most active in the sagas, isn't it? It tends to be right in the earliest days of the settlement, often at that moment when a character is making the transition from one land to another. Mm -hmm. But the story of Thorolf in Erbige Saga is really remarkable because it carries this theme a bit further than most sagas do. Even offering us uh, our first and probably most vivid glimpse into a pagan temple.
0: Well, it's our first glimpse into the imagination of a 13th century Icelander who <laughs> was a Christian and who has okay. also probably never seen a real pagan temple. Okay, sure, don't don't spoil it. Okay. <laughs> so, sorry. He,
1: here's how the uh, the saga author describes the the temple. Thorolf had a large temple built with its door in one of the side walls near the gable. Just inside the door stood the high seat pillars with the so-called holy nails fixed in them. And beyond that point, the whole building was considered a sanctuary. Inside the main temple was a structure built much like the choir in churches nowadays, and in the middle a raised platform like an altar. On this platform lay a solid ring weighing 20 ounces, upon which people had to swear all their oaths. It was the business of the temple priest to wear this ring on his arm at every public meeting. There was a sacrificial bowl on the platform, too, With a sacrificial twig shaped like a priest's aspergillum for the blood of animals killed as offerings to the gods to be sprinkled from a bowl. Inside the choir like part of the building, the figures of gods were arranged in a circle right round the platform. Now, I'm going to stop there and uh, ask you, John, what is an aspergillum? I don't even know.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. It's a uh, uh, sort of a wand with a rounded end. Uh, It's used to sprinkle holy water during Christian services. Beautiful.
1: So that's your Catholic schoolboy training coming back? That's correct. I'm glad you paid attention. I hope Father,
0: I hope Father Halloran is listening.
1: <laughs> anyway, back to the passage. It's it's a really good image, isn't it? You, you don't see that kind of thing very much in the sagas,
0: right? No, it's it's laid out for us. Uh, there's a great deal of detail here. Again, it's hard to know how much of the detail is based on some kind of secondhand knowledge, perhaps having seen abandoned sites for these things, and how much of it is simply the received um, uh, legends about these uh, temples having been filtered through hundreds of years of Christianization. Absolutely. And,
1: and there's so much uh, of a uh, Christian influence just in the perspective here. I mean, looking at that passage, they talk about, you know, the only point of comparison that they have is it's like a choir in churches right. nowadays. Um, right. It's got something like an altar, so on and so forth. And then they throw in the... Well, the, it uses
0: a sanctuary, uh, which is something that certainly existed uh, in pre-Christian temples, but there's little evidence of in pagan Germanic temples. Yeah. Uh, and so the fact that and it is a sanctuary in the Christian sense, if you look further down in the passage, uh, we're told that no living creature on the mountain, neither man nor beast, is to be harmed until it leaves of its own accord. Right. So it is a sanctuary in that in that Christian sense of sanctuary.
1: Yeah. and I mean, almost every single thing in this passage is uh, trying to find a parallel from Christian uh, church services or... Or church architecture, right? Absolutely. Um, and it's not only that. I mean, we find out just a little bit later on uh, in the passage that uh, every farmer had to pay tax to the temple, and of their duties uh, was to support the temple priest in his missions, just as farmers nowadays have to support their chieftains, so on and so forth. Um, this is just a basic reference to the Tide Law that was passed in 1097. Um, and we're going to get into that in uh, our next episode, so I won't dwell on it too much here.
0: So that gives us a pretty good overview of Icelandic religion
1: in the early Commonwealth. But don't worry, if you're hoping for more on the gods of Iceland and the gory sacrifices and ritual habits that please them so much, we'll definitely touch on them as they come up in the sagas we cover in the podcast.
0: Yeah. Uh, For now, however, it's time to say goodbye. If you're interested in continuing on with the history of medieval Iceland in our three-part massive background episode, forge ahead into episode 1B, Culture, Conversion, and Collapse, where we pick up with a discussion of medieval feud culture... And the political structure of the Commonwealth. We'll also talk about Iceland's conversion to Christianity in the year 1000. Yeah, a relatively peaceful affair, all things considered.
1: Only a few duels and ambushes to tell of in that story.
0: Well, yeah, but the violent tendencies of the great Christian missionary Thangbrand are quite fun.
1: Absolutely. So we'll
0: conclude our discussion of the
1: history of medieval Iceland in that episode by looking at the factors that led up to the collapse of the Commonwealth. Ah, it's a tragic story, but it must be told. Yes, indeed. So that does it for now. We encourage you to keep up with our podcast by visiting our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. And let us know you're there by liking us on Facebook at Thing Podcast or following us on Twitter at Sagathing podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now.
0: I like a good outhouse story. Uh, <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs>